another one of Greg's hustles he was telling us was like a restaurant in Jamaica. <laughs> and it's like, okay, like he's doing a glass blunt and then he's doing like one or another thing went different. That boy would be out there in Jamaica playing volleyball. He's selling shit. <laughs> What is up, everybody? This is Michael Sakond, the co-founder of Our Future, one of the youngest members on the Forbes 330, but the only one that ain't going to jail. And over here, we've got my co-founder, Simi Sandu. We're here for another episode of, you guessed it, Our Future podcast. On this show, we are building the number one destination for young entrepreneurs to learn from the tactics of other young entrepreneurs. Me and Simi sold our businesses at the age of 22 and 24, respectively, so we know a thing or two about what it means to be young, scrappy, and hungry. So the cooks are in the kitchen. I'm so pumped for this episode. And uh, yeah, I guess I got the intro on this one, so I'm bringing the energy. Bring the energy. Hit them with it. For story number one, I have an entrepreneur coming from Seattle, Washington, and he's building a billion-dollar tech company. His name is not Bill Gates. This is the 2020s. I'm talking about Amin Shaco. He is the co-founder and CEO of Kadama, an ed tech platform that has swept the internet. He started the company with his little brother and his friend, and the co-founder's names are Marwan L. Rookby and Danny Shaco, who is his brother. So they wanted to build like some kind of tutoring service, just pairing students on campus with tutors, at various times. And then COVID hits and their mindset completely changes. They're like, oh, we can't actually physically pair the kid to go into the library to meet his tutor. Let's do it with a digital platform at scale, right? So the kind of ceiling blows off this idea and they are insanely good at growth. And they're also really good at product, which I think is really rare. But they raised 1.7 million in venture dollars, which is actually quite small compared to how big the company is. So they did 5 million in revenue last year, projecting 10 million this year, and they have over 2 million users on the platform. So it's an incredibly successful consumer play. Um, so you can think about the app like Uber for tutors. So I'm a kid and I have a homework assignment due in an hour, right? All kids procrastinate. You can go onto this app and find a tutor instantly who can answer the questions you need to get your assignment done. So they've really won with the mobile first app, um, that quick on-demand service offering and a revenue stream for, for smart tutors uh, to essentially just make extra pocket change without having to uh, interface with students physically or be constrained to a geographic region. So Kadama, Look, if there is a startup graveyard list, I think a student tutor app is definitely on the list. I know so many people who have tried to build this kind of app or this kind of company, and they haven't been able to do so. Now, I don't believe it's because there's not value here. Kadama is clearly proof that people see the demand, people see the value in this, and, and there are actual users. I think the issue has been the approach. Now, when I think to some of my friends who've tried to start the same company, what they would do is they go to the tutoring site on campus, they try to recruit tutors in person, and now they're trying to also bet and get actual students on the platform, and it's really, really hard. So how Amin changed his approach versus everyone else is they use social media to cast a really, really wide net, right? So the way he describes it is like he was on this helicopter from above 
with the sea of students who needed all this help. And he would create really viral content that would go on their For You pages. And so he was using social media content to actually attract both students and tutors on the on the platform. And then once that worked, he resorted to kind of the typical tactics, which was throwing events on campus and yeah. getting people interested that way. And doing this was so effective. When he did actually get to a point where he threw his first event, which was at the University of Washington, he had 300 students and tutors pull up um, to be a part of it, which I thought was really cool. And I thought what was really funny is that the only incentive was getting a crumble cookie. It just goes to show how easy it is to get students to show up somewhere if you just put food in there. I think that's a funny insight, but I really want to unpack their social strategy because it's fucking genius. I mean, wow, what a masterclass. So they actually only, they create like, say they create 10 videos in a week. All right. Nine of those videos are not related to their product. Yep. Right. They're simply videos that are going to suck in the largest amount of eyeballs, Gen Z eyeballs possible. Yep. So Think of shopping hacks at Costco, how to get a free Starbucks drink, uh, hacks on your iPhone, how to make your messages disappear, how to see if someone read your message, even if it only says delivered. Just these little hacks that go viral because we we both know, right? What works on social media is these little tips and tricks that people feel are tangible in the moment, but they probably will never actually like utilize. But it's just that idea of people want to reach for like, you know, that quick marshmallow and that quick value add. It's going to fill them up versus like anything that actually is going to like educate them. So they built this huge content funnel. And then one out of every 10 videos is a promo for their app. So here's the insight. They know that creating branded content around your product doesn't always go viral, right? People see advertisements and they're like, fuck this shit. You know, we all know how people are negative on TikTok, but they're actually capturing traffic from the other videos because people are addicted to these like little life hack videos and then they'll scroll and find the Kadama app video and they'll get on it. Why? Because there's actually a little bit of a tie-in between this like life hack content and like getting a, your homework assignment done. Wherein Dude, they're just gaining are... distribution. That's that's yeah. really what it is, right? Like yeah, it's like exactly. one of those things where it's like, oh, top 10 apps under $5, right? And you just happen to natively place your brand or your app in the list, yes. right? And it's like the other nine definitely add value, but that 10th one, no one has heard about. And I've seen this on Twitter all the all the time. These Shopify cats are always giving recommendations on like the top apps to use in the app store. And it's like five really, really well-known apps. And then it's just their no-name app getting inserted as like the sixth yeah. one. And I always think that's so funny. Yeah. Because it, it still works. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it's definitely one of those like, like, very subtle flex, like yeah. subtle, like, you know, product placements. I thought I was good at advertising on short form until I met these guys. They're the most like masterful, like product insertion specialists. But the thing about these guys, right, is they got the distribution right. They have 2 million followers on TikTok. So when you think of like education brands that have crushed on social, you think of Duolingo, Kadama's right behind them. So 2 million followers on TikTok. Um, but they also have an amazing product. Like, not only is Amin come from this amazing Washington computer science background, like one of the best comp sci programs in the country by far is University of Washington. And he worked at Apple and then, you know, he had that knowledge and his brother's great on TikTok and the other guy's a great operator. So super team, right? Three co-founders and, um, you know, they've been able to pull off a masterstroke between distribution and product, which I think is super rare. 
they needed the skill sets of all three of these guys to actually go successfully execute this, right? Every single person brings something to the table. Now, yes. outside of social media, I want to talk about like tactically one strategy that was so important to this game. And it really came down to connecting people virtually, right? Because what happened is they really understood their customer or their consumer. In this case, it was students, right? I would love to say students are like, very organized and they're proactive, but that's just not the case, right? They are cramming for tests the night before or they're cramming their homework the night before, right? So 11 p.m. hits. They reach that question that they cannot get the answer to and what do you know? There's no tutor awake in sight, right? But through Kadama, you can get connected to, say, a tutor in California who's three hours back, right? It's eight o'clock. They're, they're awake. And they can hop on a call with you and actually walk you through the problem. So to me, this sounded like such a simple unlock. Like, why were the other apps not or, or platforms not considering doing a virtual connection? To me, that just seemed like the obvious one. But they cracked that nut and they did it really well. The second thing that I thought they really had going for them, which is it went beyond just a transaction. So typically when you think of tutors, who you, who are you thinking of? Like if I was like, Mike, you, you're going to have a math tutor. Who do you think? I'd think if I was in high school, a college student who's doing math. Yeah, uh, I think degree. a college student. And that is if you're lucky, right? Like you find the right person. But I think on average, most tutors fall under this category where it's like some 60-year-old grandpa that's like trying to teach you math, right? Like what they did is they connected people that were the same age as them, right? So the, it's funny because it's one of those things where like he gave a reference of like they would say vibe and they would use words like riz, right? But they were connecting, right? They were actually friends. So they were going one step further beyond just this is a transaction where some tutor is going to mm -hmm. come in and he's just going to explain this to you and you guys are going to go off on your merry way. Yeah, well, it was a retention tactic. Like right. it's a retention strategy to build a parasocial relationship. Dude, it's dead ass this podcast, right? Like why are you listening to entrepreneurship advice from some guy who sold like a $10 billion company who's like 40? Like we're talking to you guys, right? And like, we know how we, how you guys think. We know you guys want to fucking make some money and make your nut, right? Like we're not talking about that high level shit, right? Right. It's also like the tutors, they know how to best explain calculus to their, it's like, it's like two guys just having a beer trying to explain a concept to one another. Like it's, it's a really genius strategy. And what I thought was fascinating is they've used AI to keep people on the platform. So these kids are becoming friends with their tutors and it's a strong bond. But then the minute they try and be like, oh, text me or follow me on IG, DM me on IG, Kadama will block them, right? So they keep them on this platform and they keep all that value for themselves. They've been very intentional about creating this retention machine with Kadama. Not only do they bring a lot of people in, but they keep those fuckers in there. <laughs> Dude, that's the issue. <laughs> so strong. For sure, um, Dude, that's the issue with a lot of these marketplace style businesses, because the first thing people do once they're on the marketplace is try to get off the marketplace as quick as possible. They get what they need or they find that person they were looking for and they agree to a price or a rate and then they try to hop off. Right. One example of this is like Upwork or Fiverr. Right. Like that exchange doesn't stay on the platform. So what they had to do right and I think was a critical part in enabling them to win is installing safeguards. So for example, when people would try to do these little workarounds where they would ask the person for their Venmo, what people would do is they would say V, the number three, N-M-O, 
right? So they built in all of these safeguards where anything that they felt was a workaround to getting off platform, it would immediately block their account and they'd immediately be kicked off. Keeping the value there. I mean, I just, I just, retention is core to these guys' minds, right? Like it's, it's fascinating. Um, their funnel. And one interesting strategy or hack they rolled out was we're going to, when a new tutor comes onto our platform who wants to make a little bit of extra money, we're going to give them a good chunk of change when they start, right? Their rates are going to be high. Right. We're only going right. to take, we're only going to take 15%, even though for the bigger tutors, they take 30%. And that was a big change that we're going to talk about once he, once there was a crisis at the company, which we'll get to. Um, but it, I, I'll call it the slow drip effect, Right. Uber does the same thing. I believe DoorDash does the same thing. And I believe TikTok does the same thing. When you first start posting, it gives you a little bit more views. So you get sucked in uh, as a creator. Um, so it's just like that slow drip. And then the, the revenue actually goes down. But I've talked to a few guys who run gig economy companies, and they said they all use that same strategy to keep people. And then once that person has developed a habit of like, oh, I'm, I make 300 extra dollars per month using this app, they're not going to leave, like even if it goes to 250. Yeah. So I think going back to the business model really quickly, if you look at the tutors, they took a higher cut from them, but the tutors actually made more money from them taking a higher cut. And do you want to explain kind of the nuances of that? I believe it was like once they do 10 jobs on the platform or they've done 10 tutoring sessions, right? It unlocks that 30%. Am I getting that right? Yeah, so I, I think so. So Amin called at one point, the company was actually screwed. So right. they'd burn through the, this was August of 2022. They'd burn through their 1.7 million in venture funding. The company yeah. was unprofitable. So they were like, fuck, we can't charge a 15% take rate on tutors uh, deals. What we're going to have to do is charge 30%. And he emailed 200 of the top tutors and said, listen with me, you've got to stick with me. I promise you'll make more money. I got to take 30%. I got I to gotta play the Tim Cook strat. I'm going to take 30%, 30 <laughs> points, but you are going to make more money, right? Um, your app being on the app store is going to make you more money than it not, right? That's essentially the the thought process. So- um, they agreed and he was able to convince, I think 95% of them, uh, to go with him. And it's now unlocked this new lens in which they've mastered another consumer-based app strategy, wherein they individualize the platform to specific users. So say you're a tutor who makes 10,000 a month on Kadama, you're going to see a different version of the app than someone who makes 500 a month. And I was like, damn, like, that's crazy in that they have their like million milers club, right? It's almost like, you know, your Delta bit, you know, pl platinum elite sky miles, right? Like you're going to have a different experience with the company because you're a more valued customer, right? So there's different tranches of customers and then they extract the most value they can out of each, each group, which is just fucking nuts. I want to talk about the financial discipline they had to go through, right? So they raised just enough money that they thought they would never need to raise again. And I think it was a, a little over 1.5 million. Is that right? 1.7, yeah. Yeah, 1.7 million. But afterwards, they they found themselves in a really tough spot where they had two months of burn left and they could not go raise additional funding because it was this big crackdown where VCs were suddenly focused on no more growth at all costs. It's profitability. If you can't show us a profitable way, then you're not going to make, you're not going to raise any more funding from us. Um, and so it was like, they got to figure this out. And if they can't, then, you know, 
they got to shut the shut the lights off. The, the the business is over with, and so they effectively just approached this very private equity like right. Like they terminated most of their team. Um, they implemented all of these other rollouts to to kind of get their costs in order, but. While that was such a defining moment for them, I think that it's actually set them up so well, right? Like, I think they only have five or six full-time employees now, and the rest are independent contractors, and they're making so, so much money off of this business. And they're going to 2x, especially when they roll out some of these AI features that they're trying to implement. Yeah. So why don't we wrap this story talking about their future roadmap? So they want to use AI to save on even more costs and grow. Um they're going to be raising their Series A here at like I think a fifty million dollar valuation, something like that, which is awesome. Wow. Um, I, you know, it's probably a little late to get in as an angel, but like, damn, like what an awesome company <laughs> and how it's grown. <laughs> My, I know our, our boy Mark put in two hundred dollars. No, so that's super funny. Yeah, you should tell the <laughs> yeah. story. So I have this friend Mark, right? Like absolute kind of like you know Adam Newman type, like has built like a few companies, like going for the big one now with a fintech company that's in stealth. But for some reason, this man has gotten to like all the founders we talked to on this podcast like two years ago and put like $200 each into their companies. So Carta, which manages cap tables, like they're like, oh, like, you know, there's 500 grand from Index Ventures. And then suddenly it's like 200, $200.00. And it's like Mark Bagagian. <laughs> Well, that was so funny, right? Like Amin said that his investors were pissed because they looked at the cap table and they'd go all the way to the bottom and yep. they'd see Mark Bagaggi and two hundred dollars and they're like, "What the hell is this?" You can't, <laughs> you can't escape this man with Gen Z entrepreneurs. No, he was actually no. an advisor to our future, but we didn't raise his cent, so he didn't even get his two hundred. <laughs> he did not get on the cap table. Yeah, so it's super funny. But let's go ahead and move on to our next story. So the next company we're covering is pretty fun. It's a company called Crossnet, and think of it like Foursquare but for volleyball. It was started by these three guys, Greg and Chris Mead, and their childhood buddy Mike Del Papa, and they've done tens of millions in revenue so far. So the story really starts with Greg. He started Amazon on dropshipping when he was in high school, and then he ends up buying and managing big social media pages and continues to find these little arbitrage opportunities. But his first big winner is a company called Glunt, and it's exactly (laughs) what you think it is. It's a glass blunt, and he did millions in revenue. But one day, right after his brother Chris graduates from college, he calls up Greg and he says, hey, I really don't want to do a nine to five. I know you're crushing it with social media, so let's team up and build a company together. So they get together and they come up with 50 different product ideas and they filter it down to two things that they like the most. One is a wall charger speaker and the second (laughs) is cross that volleyball. Right, couldn't be more bro, different from one another. Bro, I'm, I'm, dude, both sound dumb as hell, but like, I'm, I'm going with the volleyball game, bro. Like, <laughs> For sure, right? No question, <laughs> right? Like, so obviously they go with it because it sounds way more fun, and these guys really love sports. But the next day they go to Walmart and they buy two badminton nets to build their prototype. They tie it up against their mom's shed in a tree invite over two friends, and these guys have a blast. So they get some samples built via Alibaba, and they decide to pack up their stuff, move to Miami, and play it at the beach, where there was high foot traffic. And the first day they go out there and set up, there's a line of 20 high school kids asking to play. So yeah, the rest was history, but they've had over a million people who've played the game, which is pretty cool, right? Six years into the business. 
Yeah, and well over the eight figures of revenue, like mid eight figures in revenue on this uh, this physical product they've built. Um, you know what's funny is like another one of Greg's hustles he was telling us was like a restaurant in Jamaica. <laughs> and it's like, okay, like he's doing a glass blunt and then he's doing like, he, he's, the boy's serving up some Jamaican jerk chicken on the beach. It's like if one or another thing went different, that boy would be out there in Jamaica playing volleyball. He's selling shit. <laughs> Well, he's clearly solving for personal problems, right? It is very personal to him. So one thing that I loved about these guys is their tourist hotspot strategy, right? The beauty in in going to places like beaches was there was really high foot traffic and people would come up to them organically and say, hey, you know, we want to play the game, right? And the great thing about it is they would enjoy the game and they would go home right, to their little hometown, and they would order a cross net from the website. And now the game and the the virality was spreading very organically, right? Like they would, get their fr- they would get their friends to play. And before you know it, like these kids out in Michigan, right, like Ann Arbor, like it's yeah. cross net is everywhere, right? So it's probably that was my a, boy. Yeah. That, was a, yeah. that was a really cool strategy, right? Like I don't know if they intended for people to to for it to be this diverse crowd and they would yeah. they would go back at their homes and play this game but I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, I think um there's a good element of like location when it comes to I know we talked about like let's let's talk about like being against geographic businesses. Yeah. Um in the first uh story we talked about but now it's like you have to be with a consumer product. So you have to maximize your surface area for luck when building a company. Totally. And how do you maximize luck and serendipity and just essentially get free eyeballs is going to high traffic locations. They could have, they picked the one place in the United States that this business was meant to start from, which is Miami. So Miami is different from California and that it has year round good weather and tourists are always in Miami no matter what time of year. So they picked like the best place to constantly play on the beach and just constantly be marketing their product to like millions of people who are walking by, right? So maximize their service areas of luck. It's like a tech founder go to Silicon Valley. Like you got to be where things are going on, right? So that that's the first major insight. The next insight that I want to talk about is that they have created a new sport and it's very hard to create a new sport because people, there's a lot of friction. People need to learn the rules. And I, I guess I would try to explain the rules of cross net. It's like volleyball mixed with four square. So if you played four square as a kid on the playground, um, you're essentially just tapping the ball into the other squares. And then there's one square where people can can win points and then it rotates. Um, so what I think is interesting is you look at a game like spike ball where there's like essentially like no other game that's anything like that, but they hacked into that neural pathway of, oh, kids had already played this on the playground. We might have a little better of a shot of converting us to this new backyard game because some of that rule book is hidden back inside their brain, right? And I was like, damn, that was genius. And that if they had tried to build a game from scratch, it probably wouldn't have taken off in the same way that CrossNet did. Totally. You have to draw some kind of parallel because the worst spot you can be is trying to educate your consumer base, right, on something entirely new. And there's companies that have done that. It just takes way longer and it's a it's a really steep learning curve and it's an uphill battle. But I like the fact that all of the rules were built off of Foursquare, right? So even though it was a new game, right, like they could draw these parallels, right? Again, it's probably why you look at Pickleball and I know that game's been around for a long time, but it's almost like tennis, right? In a, in a way, you can you can draw the same connection. It's a racket, Blue you're hitting a ball, it's yes. like whatever. And then you tie in the nostalgia 
nostalgic aspect, right? When did you yeah. play Foursquare? You played Foursquare square at like your childhood playground, right? Like in in for your school. Um, so I think tying into nostalgia and tying into games that are already popular is how you win when you're building out a game. I think that most consumers dip at the slightest inconvenience, right? Like if they don't understand Facts. something, they leave instantly. But I think games <laughs> are the only place that I can think of where there's a lot more grace there, right? They're actually willing to indulge um, in learning the instructions and learning the rules for a new game. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, another thing in terms of like, as you said, like that familiarity or parallel, um, Spikeball's colors for their brand right. or black and right. yellow. There was another game that came before Spikeball called Can Jam that also was black and yellow. Good times. So not only did they take the parallel from the people knew Foursquare, they're taking this this known like consumer recognition of black and yellow means new sport beach game. And I was like, oh my God, that was another hack. It was like, let's try and attack like, you know, something that's already baked into someone's neuroplasticity as a consumer. And it's like, damn, like, it's like what we talked about with RIT. It's like, all these prefab uh, companies, like if they all go up, the industry grows, like let's have our competitors win. It's like, yeah, when there's new games in the market, like the the people are looking for new games and the all boats rise with the tide. So it's like, let's all, let, let's be the yellow and black boys and like, let's, you know, make a new categories. <laughs> yeah, I think that a perfect analogy here is like food, right? Like the fact that most of these restaurants are some combination of red, yellow and brown and it's a winning strategy, right? Like Burger yeah. King does this, McDonald's does this, Wendy's does yeah. this. So yeah. you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just find something that's already working and then find a way to apply yeah. that into what just you're be doing. A, just be a little different, right? Like one like slight iteration on something that already worked. Like exactly. essentially the playbook for, I think, any young entrepreneur, like with what we did at Our Future, it was like, people are already consuming these stories on other platforms. Let's bring it to short form video. So I, I, I think, think it's a great framework. I think, though, the great thing is with big companies, they spend so much money doing research studies on even the slightest thing. I remember a story you covered about Google where it was a different shade of blue in the kind of money, in the kind of research that they had to do to figure out the kind of blue that would resonate with the most amount of people and would lead to conversions. I'll let you talk about the story, but I think it's that the same case applies here. Yeah, I mean, so one shade of blue contributed to hundreds of millions more in revenue for Google. So That's crazy. Uh, so ex-Yahoo CEO Marissa Mayer, she was at Google before, and they were working on like different colors for, I guess, the sponsorship ads inside Gmail because you get some native ads in there. And they found this one shade of blue and A-B tested all of them. And they found this one shade of blue converted like a huge multiples more of customers. So it just goes to show that the smallest change in the consumer's eyes can yield massive results. And it's more of that mentality that the Kadama guys are, are using for their company. But in terms of what I wanted to talk about with, with Greg's company and CrossNet, it's like when you're building a consumer product, you have to be so grassroots. And it just goes to show it's like a lot of young entrepreneurs just want like quick wins and they want to like scale a business. Like, you know, Kadama went to 5 million in revenue in two years. They went to you know, they probably got to 10 million after uh, six or seven, right? So it's like, you actually really have to be all boots on the ground. It's like, if you're building a, you know, a, a food company, it's like, you got to start in one region and you got to give people samples. Like, it's so hard, right? You got to start with boots on the ground. It's a lot easier to go like big and wide with a digital product. Totally. I would also say another big takeaway from their story is your consumer is not always the buyer. So 
focus all of your marketing on the buyer. And so when it comes to this company, CrossNet, it may be these young kids playing it, but the actual buyer for this product, it was 50-year-old moms. They would want to play with their kids, right? So that was where they targeted all of their marketing focus, especially in year two and year three. And that is what enabled them to actually build a multi-million dollar company. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought another genius strategy here was marketing within schools, right? So clearly the big buyer for CrossNet was the moms. But if they could build awareness in schools, right? So they would sell it to these magazines where teachers would be subscribers or read what's what's up and coming um, in the toy space, I suppose, for, for schools. Um, and they would order these cross nets. And it would lead to this organic exposure where all these kids would play it during recess, I suppose. And what do you think they go do? They go home and they bug their parents that they want a cross net and they want to play yes. it at home, right? So yes. again, it funnels back to yes. the actual buyer in this case, which is the parents, or in this case, most likely the mom. Yeah, it's like kids want to have a good time and in this digital world like parents want their kids to get out of the house and get off, yeah. you know, get off the phone so they can market and advertise via, you know, ads like to parents like that. And it goes it's like the Roblox model. It's like it's not the kid, it's the the parent's credit card. Like run that shit up. But <laughs> Dude, like we're becoming machines at connecting the dots now doing this podcast, like 12 episodes in, I can just reach for the other examples of like how many parallels I'm seeing. Um, If you remember Bolin in episode two, it's like get the customers while they're young and graduate them out, right? Like you would get them at the PE department, right? You get the kid at that formative five to six, seven, eight years old, and then they become like a fan for life. It's like a crazy mechanic that even the Acorn CEO who we spoke to on that bonus episode uh, was talking about. Yeah, 100%. Now, as we kind of wrap up here, one thing I wanted to talk about was tactically how they went about building samples out in the most lean way possible. So Mm. they got their samples done via supplier on Alibaba. But what they did, I think, will resonate and is transferable for a lot of people who want to build in D2C or want to build a gaming company. So they contacted 50 different suppliers on Alibaba, and there was two main criteria they used uh, to actually find the supplier they wanted to go with. It was who can give them the highest quality at the lowest price. And so they would play one supplier off one another, right? So they found a supplier that would give them the, a really high quality, and then they would go to a different supplier who would offer them a really cheap price, take that proposal that they got, send it to the person with the high quality and say, hey, can you match this, right? Because yep. for these suppliers, there's not a whole lot of differentiation, right? Like they're competing on price. So they just took advantage of that. I feel like the fact that they only spent $1,000 to build out a sample and now they're doing millions of dollars in revenue goes to show that you don't need a big budget to actually go build a big company, right? Like you can do it with probably sub 5K and just your personal money. Um, And I think when it goes to even their first purchase order, so they spent 15 grand on their first purchase order. And I loved how scrappy they were, right? Like these guys had just graduated from college. And so the three of them pulled in all of their 401K money that they they had at that point and all of the savings mostly being Greg because he was the only one who had like an e-commerce business that was doing well um, and they used it all to to fund the business so they were living paycheck to paycheck but again like kudos to them for the kind of co- conviction they had absolutely dude awesome tactical insight this is what this podcast is for but just to, to close out this story they want to become like the go-to backyard sports company right they feel like 
you know, there isn't really a player in that space. Most of the sports that have been created are, you know, decades old. They require a lot of people to play a lot of facilities like football or basketball. Right. Um, and they can create these like really easy games with three to four people and just get kids out of the house. And they had a genius strategy where they partnered with Danny Duncan, this massive YouTuber on a new game called SmashNet. And now they're building out a portfolio of other new games to launch, and then they're going to cross-sell that on the original kind of like website that they have. The challenge, right, for these businesses is LTV, right? You buy a sport, you buy, you know, it's like card games. You buy, you know, uh, Cards Against Humanity and you have it forever. It's not going to expire. You don't need a subscription, right? Same problem with Greg. So the goal is let's build out five games that people have in their backyard. So each customer is worth $500 to $1,000 versus, you know, just being worth 100 yeah. You know, one other thing I thought was really funny about these like outdoor game style businesses is it's so seasonality focused, right? So the hot season is obviously going to be summertime or maybe spring mm -hmm. and to some extent the fall as well. But when it comes winter in America, you know, it's probably not going to be too great. Like your website's going to be dead. So what these guys at CrossNet do is they focus all of their attention on Australia. Like, and I thought that was so funny, right? Really? Because, I didn't yeah. know that. Yeah, so they focus all of their attention on Australia and because when it's cold in the US it's actually like their warm yeah. summer season, right? So Bro, they're like they're like uh they're like the European imperialists. It's like, "Oh, we got the northern hemisphere. It's time to go to the south." <laughs> exactly. So they just switch around, right? Like when it's winter time in Australia and like that side of the world, they come on back to the US. So I thought that Bro, was really these funny. These boys these boys have a probably a permanent sunburn, not going to lie. They're going to go Australia in the winter and Miami in the summer. Yeah, so I guess on that note, we'll wrap up the episode. Thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Our Future Podcast. As always, we love having the opportunity to speak to you week after week. Please, if you can, give us a five-star rating wherever you listen to your podcast, and we will catch you again next week on another episode of Our Future Podcast. Thank you, everybody. Stay frosty.